you have your Bible, turn to, to John chapter 19. This morning we're taking a break from our study through Hebrews. Uh, for a couple of weeks, for Palm Sunday and Easter. By the way, as Anna mentioned earlier, if you're, if you're in town next Sunday for Easter, uh, just know, know kind of the schedule. We, uh, we do have a sunrise service uh, on Easter morning, and we, we mean it here, so it's at 6 a.m., and uh, so I know that's early, but hey, it's, uh, it's Easter morning, it's one time a year. So uh, it usually meets right out in, the, uh, uh, in between the two awnings of the parking lot here, if you've never been there before. 6 a.m., we'll have breakfast in this room after the sunrise service. Uh, Aaron Wine uh, will be t- speaking at the sunrise service. You'll, you need to come and, and hear him speak. Then we'll have Sunday school at the regular time in here and wor- the morning worship service. There will be no evening activities next week. And speaking of evening activities, like Anna mentioned, tonight um, our, our choir, our church choir, which a whole bunch of you need to be in, by the way. Um, I know, right? Um, I'm in it, so you be in it. Um, <laughs> Miss Mary's in it, all the more reason. So um, anyway, we're doing our, our choir program tonight for Easter, so come to that. But this morning I wanted to take a break from Hebrews and uh, jump into a series for one morning on, on Sunday morning that we've been, that we've been in on Wednesday nights um, this semester. And if you've, if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, obviously you know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't, and a lot of you haven't, uh, we, since spring break, we've been, thinking, we've been in a series thinking through the seven different statements that Jesus made while he was on the cross. Began, when we began that series, I said, I think this is a cool time of year to go through that because we'd be thinking about um, and, and focusing on the richness of the, of the passion narratives in the Gospels in these weeks leading up to Easter, Palm Sunday and Easter and, and through Easter. So today being Palm Sunday, I thought we would visit that series on a Sunday just for one week and, uh, and take our thoughts to the, to the cross of Christ and his... Uh, Suffering and death for us and for our salvation. Palm Sunday, most of you probably know, is a remembrance in the in the church calendar where we where we uh, remember the the commencement of the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, when um, when he entered into into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the the crowd shouted Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's how we read it in in Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew 21. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloak and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the sets of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you... Um, make it a den of robbers. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. 
That's what took place on what we call uh, Palm Sunday. And I love how that passage, this is not our passage for this morning, but how can you have a Palm Sunday without reading that account? I love how that, that passage presents Jesus to us as prophet, priest, and king. You know, King first because Hosanna to the son of David, right? He's, he's, he, your king is coming. That, in fact, that whole scene is, is, is fulfilling Zechariah 9. Your king is coming to you. It's, and it's prophet. Who is this? It's the prophet Jesus, right? But priest, where, where's the first place he goes when he enters the city? He goes to the temple and he exercises his authority over it. So that week began an earthly, earthly triumph, but the week would end on a cross. Um, and somebody, some of you might think, well, didn't it end in a resurrection? I said the week would end on a cross. The resurrection would actually come the first day of the next week, right? That's a pretty cool thing to think about, that the resurrection uh, happened on a Sunday. It's on the, on the eighth day, as it were. It's the first day of the next week, on the eighth day. And to think about the significance of the eighth day in Scripture. Uh, have you ever thought about the fact that, well, you know, in, in ancient Israel, they were to circumcise their children on the eighth day? Why, what's the significance of the eighth day, you know, in, in, when God created the world, he created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so it's like the eighth day is symbolic of a new creation that's coming. And, uh, and so that being circumcised on the eighth day was always looking forward to this new creation that was coming. And when did Jesus rise from the dead? He rose on the eighth day, signaling the new creation has begun. But anyway, we're, we're not to the resurrection yet. That's next week. Um, we're going to think through this morning something that Jesus said on the cross for the past few weeks in CBS. We've been thinking through um, the, seven, the seven words of the cross, what has traditionally been referred to as that. And if you haven't been here on Wednesdays, I know a lot of you haven't. Some of you uh, are adults and don't, aren't expected to be here on Wednesday night. But you may, not, you may not be familiar with the fact that Jesus said anything on the cross or said, made seven statements. You thought, well, I, don't know, I said a few things. I didn't know it was seven. Or you may not have thought that whatever he did say, maybe it had just a lot of significance to it, but um, he did say seven things, and there's a lot of significance to it. In case you don't know what those seven statements are, I'm just going to rehearse those for you, kind of set the scene for what the cross was, what, what the cross, that cross event was like in terms of what Jesus was saying on the cross. If you've been here on Wednesday nights, you've probably heard this a number of times now, but Come to me if you want to complain about hearing the cross event too much. Um, and uh, so some, some of you, this will be old hat. But some of you, and this may be the first time you, you really think about this. So we're told in Mark 15, 25, that it was about the third hour that they nailed Jesus to the cross. The third hour would be about 9 in the morning. They started counting at 6 a.m. Three hours later, it's 9 a.m. That's when they nailed him to the cross. And between 9 a.m. and noon, so the first three hours that Christ was on the cross, um, there are three different statements that Jesus made that are recorded for us in, in Scripture. And you, we get this by piecing together the four gospel accounts. And the first is in Luke 23. You don't have to turn to them, but in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was his first statement. That was Jesus living out in his own life what he had said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's him embodying that. And we talk, Father, forgive them, not because they know what they're doing, but no, they don't even know what they're doing. And we talked about how that, how that passage showed how deep and how deceptive our sin is, but also how merciful Jesus is. Right? But just a few verses later in the same chapter in Luke 23, uh, Jesus, the thief on the cross next to him said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we talked about on Wednesday night how, we talked a lot about that, that passage, but we, toward the end I said, you know, sometimes in all my life when I've been looking at that passage, the word that always jumped off the page to me and probably to you is paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's not the most important word in that verse. The most important phrase in that verse is the phrase, with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, what makes heaven heaven is not being in the presence of a beautiful place. What makes heaven heaven is being present with the person of our Savior. Right? So that's the second thing he said. But then the, the third thing, the, and the last statement we have recorded of Jesus in that first three hours that he was on the cross is recorded in John 19, 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he, then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, he took the disciple to his own home. That's a powerful scene of Jesus entrusting his mother Mary to John and John to his mother. But at that point, that's the, that's the last thing he said in that first three-hour window of being on the cross. And at that, at that hour, the Scriptures tell us it was about noon and darkness fell. You're, talking, you're, in noon, you're at noon, it's in the middle of the day, and darkness fell, darkness like night. In fact, Luke tells us that in his Gospel it was about the sixth hour, that's noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three hours it was dark, and he said, while the sun's light, failed it was dark like night for three hours in the middle of the day and and the scriptures say that for those three hours jesus said nothing it's total silence can you imagine we talked about this this past wednesday night can you imagine what it must have been like for those at that at the cross that day how how and if you love jesus if you're not one of those mocking him if you love him if you're mary you're his mother if you're his disciples you love him how, what an eternity three hours of silence and darkness must have felt like. There isn't anything recorded from his mouth. But at the end of that three hours of darkness, so it's about three o'clock, because in rapid succession, his last words. Mark 15, 34, he quoted Psalm 22. And at the end of the, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We looked at that one this past Wednesday night. Fulfilling the words of Psalm 22. But as soon as he said that, John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. That's what we're going to think about this morning. That's the statement we're going to think about in a, for a few minutes this morning. But there's two more. Two verses later, we read, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And finally, as Luke 23 comes back to tell us, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after having said this, he breathed his last.
until Sunday. Those were the seven things he said while he was on the cross, traditionally referred to as the seven words of the cross. And like I said, I wanted to focus this morning on the fifth of those seven statements found in John 19. So I hope you found that place in your Bible. Um, For context, we're going to read more than just a couple of verses. We're going to begin back in verse 16 of John 19, and we're going to read through verse 29. John 19, 16 through 29. So you can follow along as I read aloud. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and, and, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him, with two, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Why? So that everybody could read it and read those mocking words. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, also Psalm 22, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, uh, mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Let's pray. Father, um, help us on this Palm Sunday morning to think carefully about the significance of this passion account, inspired passion account for us of the death of Christ for us and for our salvation. Help us to think about it um, in, a, in a fresh way, in a new way. And uh, we, we, as we come to this, we confess that we believe that this is your holy inspired word. It's inerrant. It's, 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 in, it's infallible. It's, uh, because it's inspired by, by you, the Holy Spirit, it's, it's, it's um, an authority over us. Everything we should believe and and everything we should do in obedience to you and to live a godly life it's necessary for us if we would know anything about you it's clear when we come to it and it's sufficient for all we will ever need to know Um, if it's not these things we're wasting our time but we believe that it is so help us father to to see the truth here in these verses with clear eyes with clear thoughts with uh creating in our hearts a, a love for you 
that we would embrace the truth that we see here and a will to desire to live it out and, and do it gratefully. Give us help in this in these few minutes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, like I said, we're going to focus on those last two verses there. The, the fifth of Jesus' seven statements, the fifth statement just being two words, I thirst. What, what could you get out of just two words? I think some important things. And here's what I would like us to see in this passage and what I, how I'd like us to think about it. First, I want us to think about Jesus' identification with sinners. Jesus' identification with sinners. That perhaps is the clearest thing communicated here. Jesus became like us in every way. But why is that important? We'll say a, a little bit about why that's important in the first point when we talk about Jesus' identification with sinners. But try and make it more clearly in the second thing we, I want us to see here, which is Jesus' representation of sinners. He's our representative. We'll see that primarily through the scripture that he's quoting when he says, I thirst, or the scripture that he's fulfilling from Psalm 69. So let's dive into it and, and, and think first about how we see Jesus' identification with sinners. Think about what Jesus is saying there. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. On the one hand, um, it would be very easy to, to read that and think about him saying, I'm thirsty, just in terms of it being the, the very natural need and, and, and experience of someone who had just gone through everything Jesus was physically going through. I mean, think about, honestly, just the, the, the loss of fluids through being flogged before you ever climb onto a cross. With being flogged, and, 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 and then you're, you've, at this point that he says this, he's been hang, hanging on the cross for six hours. And for the first half of that, for the first three hours, he was, he was, he was there in the, in the very intense heat of the, of the Near Eastern sun. I mean, just, um, there isn't any question you'd be thirsty. And, and, and probably, probably thirsty in a more intense way than you'd ever felt thirst before in your, in your life. And one of the Psalms that has been quoted and fulfilled a lot in, in this Passion narrative, especially in John's Gospel, is Psalm 22. I mean, it's, it's the first verse of Psalm 22 where, G, where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that psalm is woven all through this Passion narrative in John's Gospel especially. And, and in that same psalm, Psalm 22, uh, that is... For foreshadowing, uh, prophesying what would happen to Christ on the cross, it says in verse 15 of that psalm, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So no doubt, that's at the forefront of him saying, I'm thirsty, because quite literally, he was. But that's not the whole of it. Because when you read Jesus in, 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 say, I'm thirsty here, don't forget where you're reading it. Okay? Don't forget that you're not just reading it in a gospel, you're reading it in John's gospel. Okay? Um, why is that important? Well, just try and think about 
Jesus saying, I thirst. In, in light of other things we read in John. Because if you'd been reading the Gospel of John straight through from the beginning and you got to chapter 19, by the time you get to chapter 19, that word thirst ought to be a buzzword in John's Gospel. Right? Because think about when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he asked her for a drink at the well. But he told her that if she knew who he was, she would have asked him, and in verse 10 he says, and he would have given you living water. If you had known who I was, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you living water. And a few verses later he told you, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. Jesus has water. You'd never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 4. Two, ver two chapters later in John 6, in the same passage where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. What does he say right after that in John 6, 35? I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's a, you see a theme building in John's gospel. Jesus promises that those who come to him will never thirst. He uses that imagery a lot. But then you see it in the very next chapter. In John 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem with all the other Jews for the, who were gathered there for the Feast of Booths. This is what we read in verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, on the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, uh, as the Scriptures has said, out of, his, out, of his, uh, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I mean, if you've been reading straight through John's Gospel from beginning to end, and paying careful attention, you see this theme of thirst come up in 4, 6, 7, and every time you, you get it, it's like if he, Jesus possesses nourishment that will, you'll never be thirsty again. Never thirsty, never thirsty, never thirsty, never thirsty. And so it would be kind of shocking to you to come to chapter 19, and among the things that Jesus says on the cross, He says, I thirst. Come to me, I've got water, you'll never be thirsty. Never be thirsty, I thirst. I think John wants you to be shocked by that so that you know something incredibly important about Jesus. Because you know throughout his gospel, John has been going to great lengths and great pains to show the deity of Jesus Christ. That's the very first words of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus said things like, John 8, 58, Before Abraham was, I am. And when they came to arrest him, and then the soldiers came, and he, Jesus said, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. In your English version, it says, I am he. That's me. That's what it sounds like. But in the Greek, he says, I am, which explains why, when he said that, the soldiers fell to the ground, right? 
or the seven different I am statements. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the great shepherd. I am, I am, I am. He is God who took on human flesh. Over and over again, Joseph, uh, Joseph, John, John shows us how Jesus is. God who took on human flesh. But it's in places like this passage today that he shows us that Jesus Christ is God who took on human flesh. He took on human nature. He got thirsty. He got thirsty. He knew our weakness. He knows our weakness. He knows our need. He became like us in every way but without sin. He offered living water. You'll never thirst again. He offered living water to everyone who would believe, but we could not rightly receive His living water unless and until He first took on Himself the curse of our sin. Right? And that's, the significant, that's part of the significance of Him saying, I thirst. N.T. Wright says, He came to the place where everyone else is, to the place of thirst, shame, and death. He took our curse so that we could have His blessing. He took what was ours so that we could receive what was His? He took our thirst so that He could offer never thirsty to us. Now, how do we know that's not reading just a wee bit too much into Him saying, I thirst? You know? How do we know we're not reading too much of that? What do, why do, do we say that Jesus saying he's thirsty on the cross means all of that because i think that's what jesus intends to say by it um like i said i think the predominant thing that he's saying when he says i'm thirsty was simply because quite literally he was he was thirsty as a human being undergoing that much physical suffering but just read the passage again and it's not hard to see that he's there's quite a bit more going on than just that because if we look closer at the passage in John, we don't just see his identification with sinners. We see his representation of, sin, of sinners. Just looking again at verses 28 and 29, you can see and tell that as John records these words, he's intent on showing there was something more than just I'm thirsty going on. Look again at how he words it. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said... To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. By the way, just a, a, a bit off topic, but that, that right there, that description tells you something about Roman crosses that might cut against the grain of a preconceived notion. Maybe you don't, but I think a lot of us have this idea um, from movies and pictures and stuff that uh, of Roman crosses that the one being crucified was way up high. You know, they're, they're up there on the cross. Tall cross, right? Roman crosses weren't high up like that, right? Which is why, what does it say? They could, they could reach his mouth with a hyssop branch. Hyssop branches weren't that long, right? More than likely, they could do like this and reach Jesus' head on the cross, which, which uh, maybe just puts it in a different perspective to me. That there wasn't a whole lot of distance between the dying Jesus and the people. 
right? He's, 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 he's close to you as he's giving his life, right? Jesus was very close to those watching him die, some weeping, some mocking. But back to the passage. Notice why John says Jesus said, I thirst. He said specifically to fulfill the scripture. What scripture? Well, if you're just thinking thirsty, some say it's that Psalm 22 verse I mentioned earlier where you know, his, his, his tongue is sti- sticking to his mouth. But in view of the fact that when he said, I thirst, it, said, it specifically tells us that a jar full of sour wine stood there and they put it on a sponge, on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. It seems a lot more likely that he's intending to fulfill Psalm 69. And the specific verse it looks like it was alluding to is verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. That's a psalm of David. I just want to throw something out there, something just to ponder on. Just going to put a rock in your shoe, and I'm going to move on. You know, it, just, just ponder the fact that in, in the Gospels, in John's Gospel, Jesus' first public ministry act was providing the best of wine to the people at the wedding feast in john 2 his last public is drinking the worst of the wine you know all right psalm 69 they gave me sour wine to drink that's the psalm of david for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink that was a thousand years before christ and it seems quite clear this is the scripture he was intending to fulfill but before he dies but why this one i told you i've told you more than once that um anytime you're reading your bible and a new testament quotes an old testament passage always turn back to it and read what they're quoting and know this especially if it's a psalm and especially if it's a psalm of david that when it quotes when the new testament quotes a psalm of of passage they're not just intending that one particular verse that they're quoting but they're taking you back to a neighborhood, right? They're taking you back to that whole psalm. So that whole psalm is in view, because, and you know that because they're, they're taking you that one verse of it, right? And we don't have time to read all of Psalm 69, but it's a psalm that David wrote when he was at a troubled time in his life. He had been wrongly accused of something. He was crying out to God for help, and he trusted that God would help him. Certainly that much fits the life of Jesus. He was being wrongly accused crying out for help to God, trusting God. But I want to point out one important idea before we wrap up to take away from Psalm 69 that he's fulfilling here that pertains to what Jesus was doing on the cross. Here's what, in that same Psalm, Psalm 69, here's what we read in verse 6. David says, David the king, King David says, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Think carefully about what David is saying there. The phrase that obviously, the way I read it, made it jump out to you probably, is that repeated phrase, through me, twice. Don't let all the people be put to shame because of me. Don't let them be brought to dishonor because of me. 
King David is saying that. What's, what's the significance there? It communicates that in that day, the king was the representative of all the people. The king stood in the place of all the people. He represented all the people. And whatever happened to him affected all the people, right? And you see that all in the, in the, uh, in the Old Testament. A wicked king, all the people suffer. A righteous king, all the people are blessed. The people go the way of their king. And it's this psalm and this idea that Jesus is bringing to fulfillment when he says, I thirst. He is saying he was on that cross as our king, as our representative, so that when he took the curse and bore the justice of God, it was as if you did. You go the way of your king. When he took the curse, you took the curse. You go the way of your king. And likewise, the significance of next week is when he rose from the dead righteous and victorious, your king, your king, if you're trusting in Jesus, your king is rising righteous and victorious, you did too. That's why Paul in his letters can say it, I have been crucified with Christ. It's already happened. When did it happen? When Christ was crucified. I have been raised with Christ. When? When he was raised. You go the way of your king. When you're, where, where your king goes, you go. He's your representative. All we take from this, from these two simple words. I thirst. It means that he became like you so that you could become like him. That's what it means. He became like you and took your place and as your representative blazed the trail. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. If you want to put it in the language of Hebrews. Our hope is in him. He is our hope. He only is our hope. Let's pray.